Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hey, folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 86. Today's episode is not from MeWe or from any emails or anything. It's from a conversation my wife and I had this weekend talking about our families and their past. And I want to tell you the story of a, a couple different people today. Uh, this episode is called Our Heroes Are Dead, But Don't Let Them Die. We throw around words like hero today well too, way too easy. So let me tell you the first story. Around the turn of the century, a man named Frederike moved to the United States from Italy, came in through Ellis Island, front door immigrant. All he wanted was to bring his family, grow his family here in the United States. And this man would have been my, uh, my great-grandfather, uh, but I never knew him. My great-grandmother on my mother's side through my grandmother on that side. And uh, he got here and he established his, his little business in Manhattan, actually Brooklyn, and uh, he was a barber. And as a barber in Brooklyn, at the turn of the century, turn of the last century, he uh, was able to raise a family with eight children. And as he began to prosper and the family got bigger, they eventually moved across the river to New Jersey, where a lot of my family still lives today. One of his daughters was named Rose. Rose grew up there in New Jersey, and in the 1930s, she met a man named Rex, who was to become my grandfather. Rex was a soldier stationed in Fort Monmouth, and uh, he married Rose. And he had enlisted in the 30s, in the middle of the Great Depression. It turned out Rex was a smart man, and he excelled at things like codes and things like that. So he ended up going from enlisted to what's known as a warrant officer. And his life was getting pretty, pretty good. And he and Rose were married and things looked pretty nice. 1941 came. Japanese, of course, bombed Pearl Harbor. We ended up in war overnight. So the next four years, they saw each other very seldom. And he spent most of his time in the Pacific Theater, where he was aware of things like the Manhattan Project, when most people weren't. And eventually the war ended and he got to come home. And he decided that he wanted to serve his country for as long as it made sense to. So he spent 30 years in the Army, retired as a CW4. But along the way before that happened, this is the part of the story I really want you to think about. Because I'm sure there's many stories like this, and I just don't know them. I was only told so many things. In the early 60s, we had a thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Rex and Rose were, well, they were in Lebanon. By then, they had four children of their own. And being an uh, intelligence officer, of course, 
my grandfather Rex knew a lot more than most people did about how bad things were and how close we really were to the skies lighting up and life as we know it, or all life possibly, ending on the planet. Did they hide? Did they run? Did they go down in the basement? They knew where they were. They had no hope of survival. The boys, there's two boys, two girls with their children. They're a little bit older and had some inkling of what was going on, but they sheltered them as much as they could. And the night that they really thought it was all going to go down, the night that everybody thought it was all really going to go down, they put the kids to bed. They took a bottle of wine. They went up on the flat top roof of the apartment that they had. And they figured if it was going to go out, they'd sit there and hold each other's hands and they would wait. And they'd let it happen. There was nothing they could do and they knew it. So they had a glass of wine and spent time with each other and sheltered their children from the knowledge that it might be the last night they went to bed. That's pretty amazing to me. And I sit and I wonder at times, am I worthy of that legacy? I have people in my audience tell me I'm a hero to them. And I'm like, you know, we might be cut from that cloth, but we're a long way from where it started. We have people today that are hiding from basically a bad cold. They're in their 20s. They're in perfect health. They have no physical risk whatsoever, and they're terrified. These people had a glass of wine and some cheese and watched the sky on a night when the nuclear war might have started. I'll tell you another story. Also a gentleman named Fred. Not Frederike, though. Um, Freya, I think, is how his name was in Dutch. He was my wife's father. And his father was named Andre. And they lived in the Netherlands in the middle of the Nazi invasion. And uh, when the Nazis invaded, they threw them out of their house. But her grandfather, Andre was a police officer, was a police chief in the town. Well, they left him in power. They threw him out, but they left him in, they, they left local authority in place to help maintain order. Well, he and the entire family promptly uh, joined the underground. And eventually the entire family was broken up and split up. And her grandfather, Andre, was eventually caught. He was running under a code name as a leader in the underground, and his codename was Cappy Marie. So the Nazis knew this Cappy Marie was out there, but they were looking for a woman. Well, they finally found him, and they threw him in a concentration camp. And his son was in his early teens, like mid-teens, like 14, 15 years old. This would be Dorothy's dad, Fred. And he continued to work with the underground. Risked his life, was arrested was being taken to a courthouse to be executed, and if not for a German soldier taking pity on him and saying, I'm going to pretend to get sick, and when I say I'm sick and I fall down, you're going to run and keep running and don't look back. That's how he survived. Then a German soldier thought, this kid doesn't deserve to die. And of course, when he was told to run, he didn't know if it was uh, a real chance to get away, or was it a trick? Was it an excuse so that this guy could shoot him? Happened all the time. It's the only play you got. Because you know if you go into that building, you're not coming out. Or if you do, you're calling, you're heading to a ditch to get shot in the head. But he, he managed to get away. He continued to work with the underground. And eventually, the Allies came and liberated his country. At this point, he was 17 years of age, I think, around there, 16, 17, something like that. No one would have thought any ill 
of him had he just said, okay, I'm done. There was plenty of help and support once we liberated the Netherlands. Instead, he joined the Dutch Marines as they reassembled them. And he actually was taken on a ship across to the United States and went to Marine boot camp here in the United States and then went back, served five years. Um, by the time that was all over, uh, the war was pretty much over in Europe. Some of his, some of his uh, folks he was in boot camp with went to the Pacific to continue the activities there. Some of them died. But the reason he didn't go, remember Andre? So Andre was in this concentration camp. He was a six-foot-tall man. He weighed under 100 pounds the day the Allies found him. He managed to come back to health, and he managed to come to America with his family. Well, there's more to it than that. On our wall hangs a picture of Andre receiving the Medal of Freedom from Dwight Eisenhower. And uh, that, that at the time was the highest award a civilian could receive. And it meant something, not like today where the Presidential Medal of Freedom re replaced it is now given to actors and comedians and political sellouts. That's when it actually meant something. But when, uh, what happened was the, uh, the Germans came and they took a priest. They took a priest from the cell with Andre. And the priest had made a rosary out of strings from a mattress and a little piece of wood that he carved. And they told the priest, we're taking you to shoot you. And they told Andre, we're coming back tomorrow. You're next. You're getting shot tomorrow. The priest gave the, uh, the rosary to Andre and said, take it and pray, you're gonna need it. And the next day, Instead of death, freedom came. And when they found him, they knew who he was. They knew the risks that he took, the lives that he saved, the sacrifices that he made. And they said, you can have anything you want. He said, hold on. Oh, my son. And I want to go to America. These were heroes. They faced death. And they believed in something. Don't fool yourself. None of these people today that are out there virtue signaling are worthy to shine the shoes of these people who have passed on. These are our heroes. They came through the darkest times in history. And today we cower like tiny children from a disease with a 99 plus percent survival rate. They stood in defiance of the most murderous regimes that have ever existed. They stared down the barrel of nuclear missiles. They watched their homes destroyed. They watched their families taken and they still fought back and they still resisted. Those are the heroes. They may be dead, but don't let them die. Sorry, this one was a little hard to get through, but tomorrow I'll be back with a totally different subject. But after the conversations I had with my wife this weekend, 
I just felt this story needed to be told. And I just asked the next time you're willing to act in fear, the next time you're willing to capitulate, the next time you're willing to give in, to understand these are four people, Rose and Rex and Andre and Fred and their entire families. Rex's sons went on to serve in Vietnam and Korea. Fred's whole family risked their lives as part of the underground, smuggling paperwork, helping people get out, smuggling uniforms. That's what he got arrested for. That's what Fred got arrested for. He's 14 years old with a suitcase full of Nazi uniforms so that the underground could use them. These people didn't blink. Guy gets his whole country liberated. Doesn't need to do anything anymore. Says, I want to join the fight. We're pathetic. As a society today, we're pathetic. We're pathetic. Grow a spine, America. Grow a spine. I'll be back tomorrow with something different. Hey, folks. Welcome to another episode of Miyagi Mornings. I think this is 87. 87 times we've gotten together for these morning chats. Um, today I want to talk to you about systems on your homestead, but a little bit differently than we usually do. And I think this is the place where it breaks down. I know it has for me, and I'm trying to kind of, as I've let things go a little crazy with how much I've done, start linking everything back together, which would be the right way to do it from the beginning, but when you're kind of a, a mad scientist about what you're doing, it's easier to have this problem. Uh, and I know many of you, maybe you're not all mad scientists, but you have multiple systems and you might struggle with managing your homestead. And I think this maybe will help you with that. So here's where I'm coming from. Everything that you do that involves more than a couple parts, a couple design elements uh, that you purposely put together is some sort of a system. So if you're a chicken or a duck keeper, you probably have a system for that. You have a housing area, whether it's a containment yard, uh, an actual house that they get closed in at night, some way that you protect them from predators. You have a schedule that you keep when you go let them out. You have a way that you feed them. You have a way that you provide them with water. Uh, maybe you do a coop and run, a coop and double run. Maybe you do free range. Maybe you do tractoring. But one way or another, there's a system that you run your chickens by. But conversely, you probably have a system by which if you keep dogs around your homestead, you know, as companionship, pets, security measures, all of those good things, there's a system for how you manage your dogs, a way that you feed them, a way that you water them, a way that you groom them, a way that you make sure they get enough attention because they're not a chicken. They're an animal that, you know, co cohabitates with humans. It's pretty much been bred over, over centuries now to be a companion to humans, so they need that. And then you've got a garden. Well, you have a way that you manage it over your winter season, either you garden through or you cover crop or you tarp it or something like that. You have a way that you start your seeds, a way that you plant your new plants every year, a way that you harvest, a way that you uh, manage the harvest as it comes in. You have transitional periods where you go into summer and the fall and the winter. Um, and there's a, the whole system by irrigation, fertilization, etc. There's a system there. And what happens is, and you can keep going, right? If you have a wood shop and you build things, either as part of a side hustle or for your own use, you have a way that you lay out your shop and et cetera. And, and so there's just almost endless systems. And what I think we need to do to get our, our systems working for us instead of against us is we need to basically classify them. This is a system that needs to be managed daily, weekly, 
monthly, or as needed. Those are your two, you know, your four big classifications there. And then you need to determine within those frequencies what needs to happen. And then you need to look at them. So a great way to do this, if you have a big whiteboard, would be a great way to do this. Some things to me just work, and I'm old, I understand, so many of you have like software or app management tools or something that maybe this works better for you. But for me, for this kind of thinking, because it's not, it, it, see to me, software is great for things you already know. I want to do this, then this, then this, then this, then this, like task management software or task management apps. Maybe that's a good place for this to go next. But when you're trying to create the connections and the process flow, going old school engineer here, you know, you take that big whiteboard and you, you start listing your systems. And then you start listing your frequencies. This is a daily management system, a weekly management system, a monthly or an as needed. And then you list all the things that need to happen in that management process. And you'll find some of your processes or some of your systems will be systems that require daily management. There are things that happen every day. But then they require weekly management. They require monthly management. right? And then they require as needed. Now, what would be as needed? Like if you had a shop or something, it's pretty obvious. If you only use it when you need things, well, that's as needed. But... If you have an aquaponics system, there are things that happen that break and need to be fixed. And then that leads to like a parts list and a procedure for when this thing fails. This is, this is its backup and this is how I repair it. And once you get all that down, then you can start to say, okay, uh, where is all this stuff located? What time of day is best to do this? You can start linking them together. You come up with a process flow that this is where I should start my morning management and where I should end it. And this is how these things are connected. And if you do that, you'll find that a lot of shit that you let go, that you let go way too long, because I know I do this. Like I'm constantly doing things on an as needed because they're not listed on a, you know, monthly management. Uh, one example is I have a aquatic system that will eventually I'll go out there and I'll See water levels not where they belong, and the pump is just not running optimum. It's running too slow because it's clogged up with sludge, or one of the return pipes is is uh, clogged up with sludge. So I have a way that I deal with this. I just clean the pump, and I hook up an air compressor to that return line with a little adapter I made, and I blow 40, 50 pounds of air through it, and, and that cleans it out. Well, if I do that once a month, I never walk out there and find the problem because it's preemptive. So that's one of the things I need. And then you got to figure out, okay, so when when do I have time to do this extra thing that's not part of the daily or weekly routine, right? This monthly or as-needed thing, because then there's other as-needed. As-needed is not always something broke. Sometimes as-needed is you just realize, hey, you know, even though this isn't on the schedule, it needs to be accelerated, right? So you kind of figure out where are the where are the places in my week and in my month where I have the extra time to see these needs. And then you can build out a complete process flow for yourself. And I know that sounds like overkill. And it's one of those things we don't do it and we know we should. And we just kind of like every day go do what needs doing. We usually end up with a few things becoming a natural process flow. You have to give your living creatures food and water every day. So you, you are forced into that process flow. But there's so many other things that could be weekly, right, or monthly that we just end up, ah, it's working, I don't have time today. If we create this schedule 
Then it puts us, we wake up on this particular day and we can look at that schedule. Here are the things that I need to do on my homestead today. And then we can look at them and say, here's the process flow I've developed. And then these are the things outside the process flow. These are the things that require a, a different type of attention. They're not daily, right? So we got our daily process flow and then we got our weeklies and our monthlies and our as needed that come into them. And then we can look at those and we can prioritize those. We'll see if I don't fix this, something's going to die. It just became a number one priority. So then we go through our process flow and then we go through our priority list. And that way, if anything falls off of the work ends or of the weekly or the monthly, we can just bump that to the next day. And since it wasn't a level one priority, it's a level two. It can, it can, if it can make it a second day, it's a level two priority. If it can't, it's a level one. If it's, if it's that much of a level one, it may actually go before routine maintenance. It depends, right? But once you get that in place, it becomes really easy to manage everything. And this is the macro system that interconnects the micro systems. And guess where this comes from? Business. This is how you manage a business. You just got like some MBA level instruction on how to manage a business. You just take that process and that's you go into an office, you got 50 employees. Well, then you, if you're a manager of those 50 employees, that's exactly what you should be managing. If I've got three employees, Bill, Tom, and Frank, right? I can manage Bill, Tom, and Frank. I, I can micromanage them if I want to. I can go, I don't want to, but I'm firing you if I have to micromanage you, by the way. But I can. I can go and check on each one of them, let's say, every hour, make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, and make sure they don't have any problems. And if they have any problems, it can either help them figure it out or correct the problem for them or put them in touch with who can or teach them how to use freaking Google or whatever they need to keep going. If I've got 50 employees, I'm way past the ability to do that. You know, I mean, just do the math. If I spend 15 minutes with 50 people, every, oh, I can't, right? It just doesn't work. Like, that's four people an hour, eight hours, 32 people. It's not going to work, is it? So what I have to do then is I have to break down all of the systems within. I don't have 50 people. You know, unless I'm running like a telemarketing service where all 50 people are sitting on the phone reading the same script every day. Like if I'm actually doing something productive with 50 people, I have many different things and processes those people are doing. And many interactive edges between those processes, right? Or processy, whatever you want to call it, right? And so I need to manage the process, not the people. And then within that, I create a hierarchy where I have like division managers or group managers or team leaders or project managers or whatever. And then I manage that process flow. If it works with 50 freaking people who all have their own opinions and ideas and thoughts, then it's going to work with things that are much more concrete. A pump and water does what a pump and water does, however you put it in place. It's going to do that every day until it breaks down. So this process flow management, you take this onto your homestead and your life will get so much easier. And I'm going to tell you why you don't do it. Because you can get away without it. That's the first reason. And the second reason is the first time you do it, it's a pain in the ass. But it's such a time consolidator and time saver over time. It's worth the pain in the ass. It's worth taking a weekend, drink a couple beers, go out in your garage, fire up your whiteboard and, and, and map it out. It's no different than when somebody starts a business online. There's a lot of automation process that you can set up. For instance, when I... When I go and do my, my blog post every day, it automatically, because I had a, somebody set it up for me, disc, our Discord server grabs it, 
posts it where it belongs on Discord, bridges over to the Telegram channel, posts it there, and the Telegram channel bridges over to the Telegram group and posts it there. And if I had automated processes that were available where I could get it onto MeWe and Float and all that way, I would too. They just don't have the setup for it yet that I'm aware of. There's no API interlink. When I send an email, that's all automated. When someone wants to join the email list, they just fill out a form and they join, join the email list. There's so many things that I do that are process automation or process procedure. So I write the blurbs and everything that goes into social media one time. It goes into an email. Boom, that's done. But then it's just cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. Right? All of this setting up, just simply setting up a group of text files that are templates to do stuff like that. It all takes time. And you, in any one day, you could be done with everything before you're done setting up the process. But once you set the process up, every day thereafter, you're getting your time back. And your time is your greatest form of currency. It is more important than any other thing. Dollars, Bitcoin, I don't care what, your time. Because when it comes to things like we're trying to be self-sufficient, self-reliant on our homesteads, time is everything. There's a cost to putting something in place, to building a thing, to building a garden better, building a greenhouse or whatever. But the currency that keeps it operational is time. So the more we can automate and make into a process, the better off we are. Anyway, guys, uh, with that, we'll go ahead and uh, end today's show. You kind of got a twofer. You can take this and apply it to your homestead. You can take this and apply it to your business. Honestly, you can take this and apply it to anything that is multiple systems with an interactive edge. Take care, guys. We'll be back tomorrow with something else. Well, good morning there, folks. Welcome to another episode of Miyagi Mornings, episode 88, if I have the number right, and I think that I do. It's a Wednesday, so it should be in 88, at least this week. Anyway, we are going to talk today about choosing a property in a little bit of a different light. Here's the exact question as it was asked to me uh, on my MeWe page, and if you want to ask a question or uh, give feedback for Miyagi Mornings, you can do that in the comments section of the video, but the way that I really get on the radar for a question in a new episode is the MeWe page. You can uh, find me on MeWe and uh, friend me up and look at, the, at my profile. It'll be the sticky post at the top of the page. So... Other than location and politics, what is the one th thing or top three things you would look for in a new property to buy if you had to start a new homestead? Climate, water, amount of land, shape of land, elevation changes, something else. Um, well, I looked at this and said, to do this question justice, I really need to hit nine points, right? And there's actually a lot more, but like nine points will fit in condensed version into a Miyagi Mornings episode. Uh, I've done entire podcasts about this. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and search land or real estate, you'll probably find a lot of episodes that will, will uh, go further on this stuff. But I want to start off with the top three things that we look at a piece of land for through the permaculture lens. I think he's asking this question the way he's doing because he knows I really despise government. And I think the more local the government, probably the more oppressive it is because all they can do is add to what other governments do. So I'll, even though I'm not going to really talk about it, HOAs, POAs are the devil, right? Do, do not move to a place with an HOA or a POA. You do have to look at politics. You do have to look at uh, the hooks that cities, townships, counties, etc. haven't. You can't ignore that, but we'll, we'll ignore it for this discussion. But please don't for your own use. Um, 
But going through the permaculture lens first, your first three primary things you want to look at. It's easy to remember, and I suggest you memorize it so you always think this way when you look at a piece of property. Water, access, structure. So what water is on the property? How can I get water on the property? Do I need a well? Is it on city? Is it on grid? Are there places I can put ponds in? Is there a creek? Are there opportunities when we get into structure for rain catchment? Where would that water be if we did rain catchment? How easy is it to move somewhere else on the property? How does water move across the property? That has to do with landform that we'll get to in a minute. But we need to look at it just in the very beginning from uh, from a standpoint of just how it affects water. What are the opportunities to impound water, to infiltrate water? Where are places where water is going to be a problem if we don't? Water's life. So that's where we start there. Water first, right? Next, access. Access is how we're going to be able to get to all parts of the property. So some properties, being really steep, might be difficult. We want to take our roads as close as we can to contour and only make elevation changes in very conservative and careful ways. We want to look at, you know, is there a reason we can't access the property from the rear of the property? Are we okay with that? Even even with making a decision about buying a property, we want to start from this access issue because what, what we do not want to do, we do not want to design access out of a property. We want to make sure we maintain access so we don't be looking how can we move people, vehicles, and things across this property. Now, if this is a quarter-acre property in the suburbs, that's not as big a deal. But as you get into more of rural property, even small acreage, a couple, three acres, you really want to look at access. You might realize, like, this property is great, but I am going to need something beyond shoe leather express, like we used to call it as a kid, to get to the back of the property. And this landscape is brittle enough. I really don't want to be driving my truck back there. So that means this is going to necessitate something like a UTV or a small tractor or something like that. And then you have to think about that in your budget. right? So access. Next, structure. Structure we look at in two ways. What are the existing structures on a property? Everybody kind of already does this. But I think a lot of times people don't really think about how those structures will interplay with the total grand plan. So the structure everybody focuses on is the house. And we do want to look at the house. And if we're thinking about retrofitting things for energy efficiency, like obviously a house that is south-facing is going to be easier to put some big old windows in the front of and get thermal passive heat gain in your winters. And if, it, if the house is oriented where it's facing west... It's going to bake in the heat, so we can look at those things as well. We all, and you know, what's the condition of the structures, et cetera. But we want to look at outbuildings because outbuildings play right back into what I already talked about. If we have a great big outbuilding, if there's a roof on it, water, catchment, right? So that's part of it. Where is that structure located? What can we do with that structure? What do we want to do with that structure? You know, everybody's like, well, it's got a great big building on it. Okay, what are you going to do with it? Maybe there's another property with a building that's better suited to what you want. And maybe that building is considered less valuable by a property assessor, so you're going to pay less for it. So think about water access structure. Moving on. Uh, these are more in general, but I also look at everything through the permaculture lens. That means everything I look at, I say to myself, how does permaculture design science apply to this? And I mean that when I evaluate a business. Not just just land, but so, but definitely with land. So the next is the land shape. Land shape is critical because land is generally priced by the acre one way or another. Like you're going to, all things being equal, you'll pay more for five acres than three. And unless land is really funky in the way it's shaped, it won't get you a discount on it. And, excuse me, 
<coughs> ah, must be COVID. Anyway, um, so you won't usually get land on the cheap just because it's not really ideally shaped unless it's really stupidly shaped and then you really don't want it. But here's what I mean. Let's say you gave me a choice between two properties. And I actually had this choice when I chose the property I'm on right now. I can have eight acres, but I can literally stand on the back property line. And even with my busted-ass shoulder from all my injuries, I can gently throw a baseball and hit the road. Because it's just a narrow, long strip. Or I can have three acres. It's also rectangular, but it's really deep and long. I chose a three-acre property. It was much more suited for what I wanted to do. The eight-acre property we looked at was very narrow, very long, had a house on one end, and had this long-ass strip. There was a cornfield behind it and a road in front of it. Not a whole lot of opportunity there. It's kind of like owning the damn strip between the road and somebody's house is how it felt. And so shape is really important to me. I, my preferred shape of a property is going to be mostly square. The squarer it is, generally, the better it's going to lay out. And that allows you to locate... We're talking about access and structure to locate a house if it's not already built. A little bit far enough back to where we don't feel like we're looking at the road every day. And we have a good position kind of central on the property, depending on landform. We may actually choose to put the house not so centralized. But if it's square or rectangular with reasonable depth in the rectangle, then even if we're going to be like up on the north corner or whatever, we can be back enough from the property line with the structure to uh, see less of our neighbors or other things that we may not want to see. So shape is a big thing to me. I don't like narrow strips. I don't like weird trapezoids, things like that. You know, you end up with this property that uh, it, it says it's 20 acres, but you know it's got a it's got a pretty good decent hunk here, but it's got a very long unusable thing going on. Unless, you know, water plays into it, and that's a creek boundary, and it's a beautiful creek with trout swimming in it. Like, you have to, you know, relative to all the other factors is how this goes. Next is land form. So we talk about elevation changes and stuff like this. I prefer land to be mostly flat. I really do. It's Everything is easier when land is mostly flat. I do like some elevation change. It gives you a lot of opportunity for water catchment. Uh, overland flow, it gives you a lot of opportunities with dams and ponds and things like that. So I like some elevation change. My property right here has, you know, across most of it, it's 2% grade. I mean, it's, it looks as flat as a pancake. The, the, the contours are there, but you have to really, you know, laser level them out to find them. There's a few places where I have maybe a 4 to 6% grade. That's steep here. Uh, I'd like a little more than I have. But I would like to be generally flat. Really steep, mountainous land. It can be beautifully designed. The older you get, the harder it is. I'll just say that. And everything's easier with relatively flat land. Um, next, you want to look at surrounding properties. Structure, structures and natural features. And think about scale of permanence here. So if you have a, you know, you're on the, the north side of a big hill in the northern hemisphere and you're going to get very little sunshine, that hill or that mountain, that natural structure is never going away. It's there forever. You can't change it. You know, if you buy a property and it's got some big trees and you say, you know, I don't really want to cut all the trees down, but I need to open up this one area. You can chainsaw and those can come down and you can create a glade. You're not moving a mountain. At least you shouldn't be, right? I mean, cold companies do it all the time, but we shouldn't be moving mountains. And you're not going to move a mountain on somebody else's property, to let sun in your place. So you want to look at those surrounding properties. If you have 
you know, neighbors that seem like they're going to be bad neighbors, don't do it. It's type one error. You're going to regret it for the rest of your life after you make the decision. Why do we do this? You know, I mean, you, you, you need to look at everything that's immediately around the property. Are there things there that you think you can live with, but you probably won't want to? Uh, we looked at several properties that were just off main interstates. Now, they, they weren't in cities or towns. That wasn't the issue. The issue is 24-7, 365, traffic noise. And people are like, well, I'll plant trees or whatever. Let me tell you, I'm a fisherman. I fish a lot of creeks that are right near roads. And you can be down in thick-ass woods with babbling brook, and you still hear that road. Trees only do so much to diffuse sound when the sound's right there. So really look at everything around and close and adjacent to the property and how it affects your goals. Next, soil type. You know, if you go, I want to put ponds in. Well, you need clay. Is there clay in the soil? Now, you might get a place like me. I always wanted ponds, but I took a gamble on this place, and it, it, it didn't work with, with putting in-ground ponds. It was impossible because of the rock, right? But everything else was so much a better case for it that I wasn't willing to not buy it for that. But if you really want to put ponds in, either you have the ability to dig a hole, because you know, in rock it's difficult if not impossible and then if you have all sand you're going to have to import clay now are you willing to do that are you willing to try to use glee or you know uh, manure or whatever over time to create an impoundment maybe or artificial liners or some bent night you're going to have to do something if you want to want to do that but sand is really good for growing certain things right especially sandy soil not pure sand right um It's, it's one of those things you really do want to at least consider the soil type. If nothing else, you want to take a shovel with you and see if you can dig a hole about a foot before you hit rock. Right? I mean, I did that here and just went, I'm going to have to live with this because everything else was so amazing, the other infrastructure, which is the next thing, your infrastructure. What's on that property already? You know, if you have a property that's fenced and cross-fenced, then the appraiser's only going to, you know, factor it, its value at a, at a low rate to what it would cost to install, that's instant equity in my opinion. Because equity to me is not what's on my balance sheet that the bank is going to loan against. Equity is what's on my balance sheet that I know, hey, I can't afford to do this. One of the reasons I bought this property, infrastructure, the outbuildings. So that goes under structure, but it also goes under infrastructure. There's two ways to look at it, right? And so I looked at the two steel buildings on my property and went, that's $100,000 that's not being factored into the appraisal. Because that's what it would cost me to have those two buildings put in today. $100,000 minimum for both of them. So that was like a huge gain. It gave me a place to do workshops, build a workshop for my tools, but also workshops for people to hang out in and learn in. Big three-bay garage. Like all that was really important infrastructure. The fencing, the cross-fencing. Um, is there a well? Like if you're going to be a place where you need a well, and people are like, I'll just put a well, and people in their head are like, yeah, well, it's about six grand. Really? Are you sure? Because around here, it's more like 30 if you can get somebody to do it because they're all working for oil and gas companies, putting in wells for their fracking operations. Well, I hate fracking. doesn't matter that you hate it. All that matters is when you need somebody to come drill you a well, anybody that's good at it is busy doing it for the oil and gas companies. They have to pull off one of those jobs to do years, and so they're getting 20 grand to do it for the oil and gas company. And the oil and gas company doesn't give a shit. And so they're going to ask 30 to do it for you. And if they get in the middle of something that gets kind of hard, they'll pull off your job. You'll be waiting. So what's the value of a well? The value that's already there. It depends on, on where you're at. But that's, you know, that's a piece of infrastructure. If there's piping in the ground to move water 
from your well or from your city water or whatever. That's an incredible value. You need to look at that. And if you, the infrastructure you're going to want is not there, what's it going to take to get it in? Now we're back to looking at access. That's part of it. But how much is it going to cost to build that pole barn? You know, and make sure you actually know the answer to it. So that way when you're looking at another property that has one that just needs a little rehabbing, you're making a good economic decision long term. You have to think long term value. And the last one I have for you today is climate relative to the property. So, you know, he's saying, the, the person asked the question was specific to, you know, don't say look in Texas because you live in Texas. I think that's what I kind of got out of that. But I also would say that, like, a property that would be marginal in one climate might be exceptional in another. So if you have a climate that's for, more temperate, uh, has full real winters, full real summers, good four-season property, lots of rain, etc. A property a little more like mine with you know shallower soils in it is still going to be a lot more resilient than a property here like that where we have this summer darth where we usually go three months without a drop of rain with temperatures in the hundreds. So you're going to look at the property, its soil type, everything we talked about in relation to the climate type that you're in. So a property that I might give an A-plus to in New Jersey, you move that property to central Texas, and all of a sudden I am now giving it a C-plus because you're not going to get the rainfall you do in New Jersey. You're not going to get the rest in the winter. You're not. I mean, there's so many things. And then I'm going to be also like, well, Texas is better than New Jersey, but I'm not supposed to talk about that today. <laughs> And I'm allowed to talk shit about New Jersey because guess what, friends and neighbors? I was born there at Fort Monmouth, Fort Monmouth Army Hospital. Anyway, with that, we have wrapped up another episode. I hope this helps you think more about when you're making land choices. And I know somebody said, well, how much land do you need? As much as you can get. But really, I would say that you can, you can have a really great homestead on one and a half to two acres if it's laid out appropriately and you got the water, the access, the structure and all these other things down. And, you know, I, I'm not even shy about going down to like a half acre to three quarter acre, depending on who you are and what you want to do. Um, anything less than a half acre, I would keep looking. I would keep looking. Definitely. With that, I will catch you tomorrow with another episode. Well, hello, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 89. And uh, that means we're only a couple weeks away from a centennial episode, 100 episodes. That's pretty cool. Um, I have to say most content creators that start out something new generally don't do 100 of them. They kind of fizzle out before then. This has been really fun, uh, really well received. And as long as y'all keep listening, I'll keep doing them. And... Uh, Remember, if you're listening to this on YouTube or Odyssey, which is better than YouTube, because you can earn crypto there, that's what we're going to talk about today, um, you can also catch this as a podcast in the Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, and that will continue as well, though there may be some structural changes to the way that I release podcasts after I get back from vacation next month. I'm going to try to give myself a little more time uh, to spend time with my grandkids and all, and that's in a roundabout way what we're going to talk about today, thinking about as you get older... And how does crypto become part of your retirement strategy? And we're going to do that from a question that doesn't look like it has anything to do with it. The question that I got today was basically, I run a little brick-and-mortar store type thing, or I think it was an online store, but it sells physical goods. One way or another, it's a physical product. But this really applies to any business. The basic question was, should I offer a discount if a person is willing to pay me in cryptocurrency? The answer in its fundamental sense is, yes, you should. Yes, you should. 
However, there's a lot of things and a lot of moving parts, and it depends there. And I want to go through them with you, and I want to make a case for why this makes so much sense and why I've been doing it forever. I mean, and once I understood what was going on here, okay, you damn wrong if you discount you paying cryptocurrency. The first question you have to ask yourself, though, is how much operational expense, how much operational expense do you need out of a sale? And, and this really will fall down on, you know, well, what percentage of your customers are going to, are going to take the discount? If like 5% of your customers are going to pay, uh, take the discount and you can't take 5% of your sales and kind of set them aside like they did, like basically eat it and put that money into long-term hold, you need to raise your price. You're not making enough money. If, if you're going to end up with half the people, you know, taking the discount, you have to think about things a little bit harder and how you're going to manage it, how you're going to handle it. Because if you're getting half your sales and you have any significant overhead uh, or just plain living expenses that need to come out of your business, then you're going to need to think about things a little bit more because you're going to have to take some of that back into cash. So then you might want to think about how much discount or how you basically do that. So that's going to be your first thing you have to kind of skin. So, you know, I'll give it to you this way. Let's say I was a handyman and I did work for people because that's what handymans do. And, of course, you know, that person says, well, I want you to do this little job. And there's going to be a couple hundred bucks worth of parts in the job and I'm going to charge them $400 in labor. Follow that. What I would do if I were that person as a handyman, I would say, hey, do you, do you dabble in crypto at all? You willing to pay me in crypto? And you're going to find some portion of people, oh, yeah, I'm going to cover on fighting crypto. Okay, so then what I would say is, well, I want 200 in cash or check or 220. Most, most handymans, if they're smart, you put 20 points on parts on parts. If you're going to pick them up for the person, that takes time and effort, et cetera. So, you know, 20, 25% on the parts and I need that in cash and I'll do the labor portion at a discount of 10%, 50%, whatever you want to do if you pay in cryptocurrency. That's another way to do it because the, the outflow, like your labor is spent, and that, if you look at the, the thumbnail in today's video, it is from George Clausen's book, The Richest Man in Babylon, and I'm going to read it so I get it exactly right when I'm quoting somebody. I found the road to wealth when I decided to par that a part of all I earned was mine to keep. You just need to see the money you take in in cryptocurrency as that form of money. This is why I think crypto has been so strong, and especially Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is where the majority of your holdings should be. There's some altcoins that are interesting, but the majority of your holdings should be in Bitcoin. If you have a, you're doing what you call a capital sweep, where you have excess money, and I don't want this to get eroded by uh, by inflation. I just want it to go away and be there for a long time in, in the hardest digital money that exists. That goes into Bitcoin, right? And what I love about Bitcoin is people don't want to spend it. People don't want to spend it. For the first time in the history of this country, uh, certainly in the history of this country that I've witnessed in, in my live years, people are actually saving money for real. Crypto's making people understand that there's a value in this. And part of what you need to understand looking at crypto, when you, if you're one of these people that still doesn't understand it, is that the way they've designed money from the Federal Reserve is so that you will spend it and so that you will borrow and so that you will spend money you don't have and so that you will work forever. It was designed to make you a hamster in a wheel that has to run for his little nibblers every day and that every day you have to run a little bit harder to get the same amount of nibblers with a little bit less calories in them. This reverses that. That's why we do this. So, That's the first slide. Next is which cryptos should you be willing to accept? 
The answer is all of them sort of maybe, but maybe not. So here's how I do this. If the crypto you want to pay me in is some crypto I have no interest in, I don't want to hold it, I don't want anything to do with it, but it's on any of the exchanges I have accounts at, especially what's called an OKYC exchange, which means my, my, my you know, social security number and government-issued ID and all is not on that account. If it's there and I can convert it to Bitcoin, I'll take it. If I can convert it to Bitcoin, like the two that I'm really interested in holding right now are Bitcoin and Pirate Chain. Pirate Chain is totally private. If I can convert it into either one of those, yeah, I'll take it. Now, so this is where you get opportunities to upsell as well. I'm going to kind of combine that in this bullet point. So I sell a membership for 50 bucks. I offer a deep discount if you'll pay me in cryptocurrency, right? Um, but you got to buy three years instead of one year to get it. So you can either pay 50 bucks a year or 100 bucks for three years. Now, I have no big material cost in the delivery of that service. I don't have... You know, I have a hosting bill and all that. It's a big hosting bill. When you run a podcast with a quarter million downloads, you know, my hosting bill is over 800 bucks a month to run a dedicated box and bandwidth and all that. So there is a cost, but that cost is pretty fixed. If 100 extra people join that membership program next month, my, my costs don't go up with it. There's no physical product to ship. So that lets me put in that large discount. And I do that specifically because if that, especially when that person wants to pay in, you know, Ethereum or Dash or whatever, I want them to do the hundred bucks because that's going to meet the minimum deposit threshold on most of the uh, accounts or most of the the, uh, the exchanges, so that I can just give them an address to an exchange account and immediately flip it into something I want to hold long term. So you want to think that way too, because people are like, well, they wanted to pay in, you know, blah 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 coin, and I don't really want that. Do you have an exchange yet? Is it on there? Yeah. Is, will it meet the minimum deposit requirement? Yeah. Okay, do it. So that's how I handle that. Um, how should you take crypto? Again, it depends. If you are running a really kind of slicked up e-commerce store and you sell a lot of stuff, you should probably use some sort of a plug-in. Uh, there's a lot of them. I don't know anything about them, so I won't recommend any. I can't remember the name of the one, but we did find one. Um, I had a freaking bug in my ear there, but I didn't get him. Um, <laughs> uh Yeah, I, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll see if I can find it. If I can find it, I'll add it to the resources I already have in the notes for this episode. And, uh, yeah, that, but you might want to do that because of just ease. Like you ship 20 different products, 30 different products, 50 different products. You, you don't have time to manually touch it. If you sell a one or two or three things, you can do what I do, which is they fill out a form for an order. They say what crypto they want to pay with. They get an email from me saying, Hey, do you want, you can either do, you know, one month or, or one year or three years. And here's an address. And then it's very, very private. There's no, you see how that works? So it's up to you how you do it. There's lots of ways to do it. You can just get a wallet like Jax or Coinami or Exodus or any good wallet to get started. Just generate an address, give it to your customer. You don't need any high-tech shit. And in some ways, maybe it's better if you don't have it. However, maybe you do want this transaction to be completely public. You do want to pay taxes on it, maybe just because of the way you run your business. You may need to make sure that you do, but maybe you can use this discount to your advantage. Now, how would we do that? Well, we have to understand the rules of the game so that we can rape them, not break them. All right. So the rules of the game say that if you send me a Bitcoin or a half a Bitcoin or a tenth of a Bitcoin or a hundredth of a Bitcoin, whatever it is, 
That is revenue to me, even though they don't call it money. They call it a security or a commodity, right? It's property. It's not money. It's like barter is how it's handled. So let's say I'm selling something, and my cost of goods sold on it is $100, and I normally sell it for like $130. Now, understand, cost of goods sold might not all be real cost if you know how to work the side of the tax thing. So when we look at cost of goods sold, we have a direct cost of goods sold. That means the direct expenses against it. But then overall, you can pull back and look at the total expenses in your operation and you know a burden cost of goods sold, because that includes like the building you work out of and what's the deduction for that. And you might figure out that, you know, on on in in reality I make fifty bucks on this, but on paper, by the time this is all said and done with, I I really make like thirty. Because some of the expenses are somewhat phantom expenses. Well, whatever that number is, if you can offer the discount where it comes in below that number as a sale, so let's say you're by the time it's all said and done, on paper you're making $100 a unit. If you sell, even though you're really making $120, all right, you see how that works? And if you don't understand that, then look into it and figure out how it works. Um, but even if you just really made, you know, you need to make $100 to break even, if you really believe in something like Bitcoin, will sell it for $95. You've, you've lost five bucks on paper. And then you put that Bitcoin away. A portion of all you earn is yours to keep forever. You just lost $5. But you got $95 worth of Bitcoin. How often can you afford to do that? You, only you know your numbers on the back end of your business. But that's one aspect. You could sell at cost. Again, paper cost. You not cost as in you lost money or you broke even in reality when you look at the total burden labor of your business. And you should know this number. How much money do you really make and how much money do you have to actually pay tax on? You could sell for the exact cost of the money you pay tax on. It's a net zero. And now you've put money away for long term in a hard asset because that's what Bitcoin is. Even those who don't understand it, it is. Um, another thing to look at is um, Bitcoin's annualized return over any five-year period is 200%. 200%. So if you look at, if you're taking money in that you're like, I can put that money away and not look at it for at least five years, you're insane if you don't offer some sort of a discount to incentivize that type of money coming in. Because again, not only do you have the appreciation gain possibility, But you have this, this asset that I promise you, it will be harder for you to part with than dollars. Again, the government and the Federal Reserve and the banks designed dollars so that we would mentally be willing to part with them easily. Bitcoin was designed so that in time, when people began to understand it, it would be difficult for us mentally to part with it. Got it? So it's going to be easier for you to save it, and if it earns what it did before... It's a home run the first year. Even if you have a down cycle, by the time you get the second year, those two together, it's a home run. But let's be conservative. I like to be conservative with economic forecasts and predictions. I am really good with economic modeling with Excel. I tend to be incredibly accurate with my projections being this is the best or this is the worst case scenario. Usually, my predictions are exceeded. 
right? Or if they're, I'm predicting the bad, they don't quite get as bad as I'm saying they are. I, I, I like to be conservative. I don't know how you could be more conservative with Bitcoin and say, well, let's just assume over the next 10 years it's going to do one-eighth what it's done since inception. Well, that's 25% return. 25% on, month, on long-term or forever money. Because I personally think Bitcoin's going to turn into forever money. I personally think most people that hold Bitcoin into retirement will never sell it. There will be ways to generate income from that resource and never pay tax on the base itself. It will go away and never, ever, ever get spent. I, I know that seems crazy, but when you start looking at things like what Michael Saylor's talking about, that makes sense. I have a link in the video notes today. It's a long interview with him. It's called an Economics Masterclass. It's the best interview ever. I recommend you listen to it multiple times until you understand what this genius is talking about. But even with a one-eighth of historical, it makes sense to give discounts and to think differently about Bitcoin than fiat currency in a big way. Um, I do have some resources for you today. I got that Michael Saylor interview in the video notes. I've got the BPSAA, which I think is something you all need to learn more about if you don't know about it. Um, they're basically a blockchain privacy organization working with Pirate, working with Komodo, working with quite a few other really amazing people to develop technologies to the point where um, you'll be able to do business with other people completely privately and there will be, there'll be nothing anybody can do about it. We're talking about distributed VPNs. So I am using a blockchain and a cryptocurrency to pay for a VPN service that constantly changes based on my choices. And there's no reservoir of information for a data leak of customers' information when the customer was paying for a VPN that was supposed to be private and the VPN company was keeping the customer's information because that shit has happened. You really need to look into the uh, BPSAA. Uh, I, I really think that they are the game changer in all things, and they're going to make it possible with Pirate and the bridge technology and the atomic swaps on the back end to use any currency to any currency and have it be private. And that's amazing. Uh, and then... If you want to get started with cryptocurrency, you, the easiest way I know is Coinbase. You set it up. That is all KYC. But if you're going to buy crypto for fiat, you're going to do KYC. And as we talked about today, there may be reasons that you want some of your crypto totally above board with the government because buying crypto does not incur up tax with it. Okay, this is something I think people understand. You can go to Coinbase, buy $10,000 worth of Bitcoin today, and it can be worth $20,000 tomorrow or next year or whatever. Coinbase could send a picture of you in a Bitcoin t-shirt with your portfolio in your hand petting your dog, and you owe no tax dollars. You bought it, you didn't sell it, you didn't trade it. Okay, Long term, we're going to have waste. We're going to be able to borrow against our Bitcoin. We're going to be able to loan our Bitcoin. That already exists, but it's going to be a lot better, a lot better organized, a lot better guarantees. And this is what's going to enable people with large holdings in retirement to have cash flow and no tax consequence against them. And that is badass. And so they're, you know... If you have hidden Bitcoin, that may be a little more complicated. So don't think that all of it needs to be squirreled away. You just needs to be protected. That's security. That's not privacy. And then I have the three wallets I recommend, Jax, Coinami, and Exodus. Those are all great starting wallets. I use Jax, but it's because I started with it. If I was picking one today, it would probably be Exodus or Coinami. So I have all three of those. I have some security advice here at the end. If you're going to get a wallet... 
on your phone, especially when you're going to get a mobile wallet. This is really, really important. Do not go to the freaking Google Play Store or the App Store. You're relying on the Google and uh, the Apple employees and all to actually be correct when they approve an app. And sometimes they disapprove apps for no good reason. But other times they seem to approve apps that are not real, that can steal from you. Go to Jax.io, Jax.io, or go to Coinami.com, or go to Exodus.com. In your browser, on your phone, select to download the mobile wallet from the actual website that the actual company that makes the wallet hosts. It will open up the app in the App Store either way, and that way you know you're dealing with the genuine article. I've heard of some people being scammed, specifically with Jax, out of the Google Play Store, I think is where that happened. Go to the source. At that, we are done. We'll have one more episode tomorrow, and I promise, I don't know what it's going to be about yet, but it won't be about cryptocurrency. I try to limit those to one a week on Miyagi Mornings. But guys, gals, those of you that are like, I don't want to know, Bitcoin, you're ignoring the biggest economic shift in history. And for the first time ever, consumers can front end the institutions. The institutions are coming big time in ways you can't even begin to fathom yet, the amount of money that is about to pour into this thing will boggle the mind. You have time, but the clock is ticking. Take care, guys. I'll catch you later. Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen of Interwebs Land. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 90, as we head on toward our centennial episode. Um... Today we're going to talk about making decisions. I, I think I cover parts of this here and there throughout the entire series. I certainly talk about how to make intelligent decisions on, on the show, but I don't know that I've really kind of broke down a process for this for quite a while. This is probably going to bloody some noses because when I pick some specific examples, you won't agree with me. I don't care if you agree with me. I don't even think you have to agree with me. The reason it'll piss off some people, though, is because when I point out the process, they'll realize they didn't do it. And therefore, your belief or your decision or what you think somebody else should be doing is what we call, call an article of faith. It's not a rational, sane decision. Let's start out with a big one that's a perfect example of this right now. Should you or should you not get one of the experimental, emergency authorized use approved vaccines? And if you do so, should you take the additional risk of using what is a gene therapy uh, and was called a gene therapy by the FDA all the way up until this year, or actually last year, when they changed the definition of what a gene therapy was so that they could get the vaccines approved as vaccines. Now, that's all factual. If you're already triggered, what I'm going to tell you is you don't know facts about this situation. And if you were to go and look up the SEC filing that Moderna filed with the Security and Exchange Commission when they wanted to become a public company, talking about the exact technology they used to produce the Moderna vaccine, right now you will see them say that it is a gene therapy as regulated by the FDA. So that is a thing. That's a fact that you maybe you didn't know. I will put a link to that document. I believe it's page 19, but if I'm wrong, I'll put which page it is right next to that link where you can go read it. That's an example of something you didn't know. Does that mean you shouldn't get it? No. No, but maybe before you decide to have two injections of a, of a vaccine put in your body, you should have known that. Don't you think you should know that? Don't you think you should know what they're putting in you and how it works and why they say it works and 
Like, what is the actual success rate when they say it's 95% effective? What does that mean? Don't you think you should know that? I mean, don't you think you should know those things? This is what I'm saying about decision-making processes. The average person, when they make a decision, if you said, look, here's a piece of paper, just a random piece of paper, here's a pen, I don't have a good pen for this, this is a yellow highlight marker, I want you to take this and I want you to sit down and I want you to write just whatever will fit on one page that you actually know about this thing you're making a decision on. If you left the room, played a little Jeopardy music in your head, came back after about five minutes, this is what the piece of paper would generally look like. Maybe they would do a little picture of their dog on it. The average person today makes decisions based on what the TV tells them and their personal prejudices and biases. If they're a Republican, they're going to come down on the dominant conservative side of the issue. If they're a Democrat, they're going to come down on the dominant liberal side of the, of, of the decision. There's places where that actually makes sense. I completely understand why a Republican, in general, would be against all forms of gun control. At least should be. There's already 20,000 laws. Why do we need another one? That's my position. In fact, my position is all those 20,000 laws, most of them need to go away. That's that I'm, I have, but that's a very anchored position. So when someone's a liberal Democrat and they're pro gun control for some new gun law, I don't agree with them, but I, I understand why they think that way. Now there might be in there a lot of assumptions and beliefs that are untrue. I've talked to people on the gun control issue that are like, well, we at least have to have an assault weapons ban. Well, why? Well, they're more powerful. No, they're not. The average deer rifle is way more powerful than the average AR-15. Well, there has to be. So the minute when they say, well, there has to be, what they're saying is, I don't know jack diddly square root of F all about this issue, but I've made a decision based on a belief system, not a, not factual knowledge. And you can keep going. You can look at the, you know, we need to wear masks. Really? Why? Well, the, the Fauci says so. Okay, that's an appeal to authority fallacy. That's not a rational decision. Here's 12 studies, the first done in 1947, the last done in 2019, that clearly and conclusively show using RCTs, that's a randomized controlled trial, the gold standard for a study like that, that show mass masking of the public does not work in preventing the spread of viral illnesses. Period. Everybody accepted this until 20, late 2020 or early mid 2020. Everybody accepted that as scientific fact. They changed the, the, the dialogue, but the facts didn't change. Now, maybe you can find facts and logic and reason to support your decision for mass masking. Maybe you can. But again, if I give you a piece of paper, those of you that are masketeers, and say, write down everything, not you think, not somebody said, everything you absolutely know about this issue, some of you would write some shit about some hamsters and cages on it, and that'd be about it. In other words, you don't know why you believe what you believe. Now, I want to be very clear here. You can take the alternate position to me on any of these issues and any other issue that we go into. You know, is Biden wrong for not interfering with Russia in the Black Sea? I don't, I, you know, honestly, my gut is, as much as I dislike Biden, I don't want to jack around with Russia and start a conflict over Ukraine. Ukraine is not my concern. Ukraine is not my business. I have no vested interest in the Ukraine. And the people that are like, well, what? He illegally annexed Crimea. Well, 
Did you know that there was an election, or actually a, a, a vote in Crimea? And the Crimean people were offered a choice, return to the Russian Federation or remain in the Ukraine. Did, did, or actually remain, did you know that? If you didn't know that, then you wouldn't know that 95% of the people in that vote voted to return to Russia. Do we have a right to tell other people what to do with their own country, their own land, their own property? Do we? I don't think we do. When we look at the South China Sea in China, it's a different world. It's a different world. You have a nation that's an ally of the United States in Taiwan that we are legally obligated by treaty to defend. Oh, we're legally obligated to defend Ukraine too, aren't we? Should we be in, in an entangling alliance like that? Did you know that like the one of the primary founders of the United States of America, Thomas Jefferson, said that we should not be involved in entangling alliances? Did you know that? See, it doesn't matter how you come down on the decision. I'm just asking you, do you know these things? And anybody listening to this who's triggered about all this now, the reason you're triggered by it is you don't know. Now, if you're thinking, well, he doesn't know this, 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 and this about this issue. Great. Okay. And if you can prove, prove those things to me, I might change my position. My question to you is, do you know those things? Or did somebody tell you those things? Do you believe those things or do you know those things? Or do you think they're true and you know you think they're true, but the preponderance of the evidence that you've actually examined, right, leads you to the conclusion that they're true? All of those are possibilities. So to me, the process is the first thing that you do in a situation is you weigh, first of all, the first thing you should ask yourself is, do I get a say in this? Do I get a, do I get a say in this? Let's look at the crypto market. Well, Coinbase went public. I don't like that because I'm a crypto anarchist. Do you get a say in whether Coinbase goes public or not? Does your opinion or your tweet or your, your share on float, does it prevent that? Does it encourage that? If I think it's good or bad, does that change anything? No. Then your decision needs to move not to whether this thing's good or bad, but what do you do in response to it? So the first thing is, do you have any control over it? The second question is, does this affect you? There's so many people worried about so many effing things that do not affect them in any way. This thing that you're so worried about does not have an impact on your life. Move on. Worry about something else. Like, you got to get through those first two. Then we've determined that either I can influence this or it does impact my life. Now we have to make a decision about either what we're going to do or what we think, and probably both. Because I can come to the conclusion that I don't like this thing happening, but this thing is going to happen anyway, and I can't stop it, but maybe I can benefit from it. See, if you're logical and rational, that's where you go. If you're irrational, you start saying stupid crap like, we're going to fight them and hold them accountable and punish them at the ballot box. No, you're not. You're not going to fight them. You're not going to hold them accountable. You're not going to punish them at the ballot box. You're not. If it's a political thing, you're not going to do any of that. You're not ever, 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 never, ever going to do any of that. When have you held them accountable in the past? You have a zero track record of holding anybody in government accountable for anything in your adult life, but now you're going to do it next time. This is because you've left the world of rational, logical thought, and you've gone into the world of emotion and response. You, you are a perfect example of what Vin Armani calls the dim age. You are being led by emotion, and hence you are being led by some sort of talisman, this false belief that something that you're going to do is going to change some other thing. You control one person in this world fully, 
That's you, your mind, your heart, your soul, your being. That's all you control. So you better get 100% control over that being because it's the only one you can have. So when you hear something and it immediately angers you, stop. Just stop. Just relax. I know it's still there, but you need to relax. You Humans cannot make good decisions in an emotional state. So you have to back off the anger, and then you have to say, what do I know about this? And again, most people will have a piece of paper like this if they write everything they know on it. Nothing on it. Zero. So then you have to start researching it. And let me tell you how I research a thing. When I was in school, I'm talking high school here, I was in debate, and I had a speech class where we had to debate as well. And we would get an issue. Is hunting good or bad for the animal population? Not, not even, you know, is hunting good or bad for, um, is it okay to kill animals? Just, is it good for the population of animals in the state? Really, you're going to ask me that? Because I'm ready for that. Yeah, but what would happen is you would be told this is your, this is your issue. Now, what you have to do is you have to prepare next Tuesday. You're going to come in. You're going to debate Bill on this issue. Maybe Bill and I agree on this issue. Yeah, it doesn't matter. On Tuesday, when you come in, I will tell you what position you have to take in your debate. Whoa. So I might have to say that it's not good for the population of animals. Yep. But I don't believe that. Doesn't matter. You're going to have to research both sides of this issue. You're going to have to come up with every valid talking point, every logical reason, even every emotional plea to try to make your case for your side of the debate. And you know what that makes you really good at? Having to do that over and over and over and over and over again. It makes you really good at making rational, informed choices. It also makes you really good at debating others. Because if you game this out, you know, in high school or I guess college has debate teams or whatever, you might have to deal with that. You might have to deal with coming up and debating someone and taking a position counter to your own. That's only training, though. That's only teaching. What it does is when you now have to make a decision and you might have to debate that thing in the future, you've gamed out the other side's argument. You know the majority of the arguments that are going to be made by the other side. And you know exactly how to kill them if you can. That's really important. Can you kill them or can you counter them with rhetoric and can you counter them with emotion and can you counter them with fallacy that doesn't sound like fallacy? You might have to do that in a debate like this, but then you recognize it when the other side's doing it. It requires you to actually know what the F you're talking about. And what you'll find is you'll be much more centered on most things than most people if you start doing this. Because you'll realize that both sides do have some issue points. They do have some facts on their side. And then you'll have to rationalize, okay, so which which side outweighs the other side in probability? You want me to give you an example. These vaccines that, they're, that they call vaccines that are gene therapies. I'm sorry, that's what they are. They're not vaccines. I look at this rationally this way. Are there people that might benefit from this? Sure. Might they work? Sure. Might the side effects be less in percentile than the disease itself measured on a whole as far as the dangers from the disease? Maybe. The answer to all of these things right now is I don't know. 
I've looked at the technology, and I think it is fascinating technology to make specific vaccines for fighting things like specific cancers. In other words, Bill comes in, Bill has cancer XYZ. They actually use Bill's own material to build a vaccine that will help. It's not really a vaccine, though, is it? They're building a gene therapy that goes back into Bill that produces antibodies that fight that specific type of cancer. That's fascinating. And if I was, you know, at serious risk of death from a cancer, I would be all in on trying that. That makes sense. If I was an older person that had a severe risk of death from this disease, I don't know what I would do, but I know that I would be more likely to consider getting the vaccine. Maybe. I don't, I'm not in that position. I can't really know. There's going to be an emotional play in there somewhere. For me, 48 years of age, in good health, having lost all the weight that I have, taking proper supplementation, fully understanding the disease, being on zinc and quercetin, knowing that my freaking cells are loaded with zinc, believing there's a high probability I already had this damn illness, knowing that the innate immunity is as high as 50% in the country as it is, knowing that the death tally is all based on a lot of people who would have died anyway, knowing all these things, when I look at it, I'm not saying the vaccine definitely will kill people. I don't know that. I know the vaccine has killed some people. What's the probability it will kill me or seriously injure me? I don't know. What I do know is my odds of surviving COVID, if I haven't already have it, and if I get it, is about 99.98%. So to me, the unknown nature of the vaccine outweighs the benefit of the vaccine. Therefore, I refuse it on logic and reason and common sense. But I actually know all the things that I told you about it. I don't think them. I know them. I understand them fully. And then I've made a fully informed, rational decision. Might someone in my position know all those things, know some other things, and come to a different conclusion? Yes. And I'm okay with that person making that decision. I'm okay with that person making that choice. It's their life. They have every right to make it. But you don't have a right to make a decision for me in my life. And when you start things like, but then you can spread the disease. You might have it and not know it. Actually, Anthony Fraudzi, who's, who's like the people, everybody, everybody cites this guy, right, has said that you have a higher probability of having the, the disease and not knowing it with the vaccine and might still be able to spread it. So you still have to wear a mask and social distance. Okay, so now you're appealing to authority. You're using a fallacy and you're, you're coming to an illogical conclusion that I reduce my, op, my potential to give somebody else the virus by getting a vaccine that doesn't make sense for me. If you're a frontline healthcare worker, I don't know that I would do it if I were you, but I understand why you would. You're getting constantly exposed. Now, I'm also thinking, I don't care how many masks you wear and shit, if you've been working with COVID patients for as long as this thing's been going on, you've either developed immunity or had COVID. Or you've developed immunity by having COVID at such a mild rate that you didn't know it. I don't think you're going to see many more Frontline workers who have been working with COVID patients for months come down with COVID. It's called natural immunity. Natural immunity is a thing. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but it is. There's so many things packed into that decision. And I probably shouldn't even have brought it up. I probably shouldn't have made this part of what we were talking about today. Because I should have stuck this to the process. But to me, we have to put the process to work in a place that's controversial to really see how it works. So we figure out all the information that we can know, everything that's knowable. We figure out all the things that are like not knowable, but the preponderance of evidence is X. And then we put those two things together and we do a risk-reward ratio or a does-it-matter ratio 
or does this benefit me ratio for ourselves, and then we make a decision. And you know why most people won't do it? Because they're fucking lazy. That's why. Some of you listen to this, I don't want to do all that. I just want somebody to tell me. You know what? If I'm buying a car, I'm picking between two models, and I know a guy that's an expert in cars, I'll call him up and say, hey, should I get car A or car B? And I'll really most likely come down on whatever he says, especially if he tells me why. But I got to get to car A and car B on my own. I got to get that far. I got to know what I want. Because you call up a guy that knows a lot about cars and say, well, what car should I buy? He's going to say, well, what do you like? What are you going to do with it? Like, you have to make a lot of these decisions for yourself. And then I also need to know enough about cars to know that this guy's really not an expert. He just got a job working for the government for 40 years. And he's going to say whatever the hell advances the agenda that a bureaucrat wants to advance. Right? That's, I need to know that. That requires, that requires time and it requires effort. And that's why they just spent the last, really, the last 30 years doing everything that they could through our education system and our media to make the American people, and I'd say the entire Western world of people, as mentally fucking lazy as they can. But you are a thinking, breathing being. You are a spiritual being. You are more than just your body parts. And you have a choice. You can stay the fuck asleep where you can wake the fuck up and start learning how to make decisions for yourself. I'll catch you next week. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.